Thank you for joining Analytics Today, a podcast series that focuses on big data and analytics and the latest trends in the digital world. I am your co-host, Jeremy Roberts, and with me always is my co-host, Samir Khan. Hey, Samir. Hey, Jeremy. How's it going? How are you, man? I'm doing great. Uh, how are, how's, it, how's life? What's going on? Life is good. I'm getting ready for spring break. It's, um, you know, it's, it's always exciting. It's that kind of back and forth dilemma of do you spend on a great experience that your kids love or pay your mortgage? You know, (laughs) 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 what do you do? So outside of that, I, today we've got a fantastic, fantastic duo that we're going to be interviewing. Um, these guys are both well accomplished. You know, businessmen and uh, professors in the academia world. It's difficult for me to read a 30 page intro about each, but I'd rather have them talk about themselves. We're going to introduce uh, Dan McCarthy and Peter Fader. Welcome to the show, guys. Great to be with you. Thanks for all the kind words. Yeah, yep. really appreciate you having us. Sure. Let's do it. Let's start with Dan first. Dan, if you want to give a little spiel about yourself, this is your opportunity to brag. <laughs> well, I don't have nearly as much to say, but uh, right now I'm, I'm a professor of marketing at the uh, Emory University Scoyceta School of Business. So I teach a course on marketing research here, but my research specialty is all about customer lifetime value and kind of what you can do with it. Uh, my background is actually in statistics, so I went to uh, the Wharton School for both undergraduate and for my PhD. And uh, my PhD formally is in statistics until in the second year I, I met with uh, with Pete Fader, who uh, kind of has become my partner in crime on, on a number of different things. So uh, I'd say the other hat that I wear, in addition to being a professor, is co-founder and chief statistician of a predictive analytics firm called Zodiac. Again, the reason Pete's a partner in crime is because we uh, started it together. And basically, you know, what we do for Zodiac is essentially bring a lot of the the models we've had so much fun building over the past uh, bunch of years, uh, essentially to, to very large corporations. So ingest all their CRM and transaction log data, spit back out a whole bunch of very accurate predictions for what the customers are going to do, and uh, you know, basically find ways to help companies monetize that. So uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me, and I guess now I'll kind of pass it over to, pass it over to Pete. Sure thing. So Pete Fader, professor of marketing at the Wharton School, um, <clears throat> 30 plus years of, of it. Uh, it's getting funner and funner all the time. And maybe that's because I'm just old and senile, or maybe it's because just the, the, the quality of the data that we have, the kinds of questions that companies are asking, and their willingness to actually move ahead with the answers uh, has been, uh, well, beyond the wildest dreams I would have had as a, as a genius professor all those years ago. So predicting who's going to do what, when, for how long, for how much money, uh, and then building strategies that let, let companies better leverage that. Uh, it's been uh, just, it's wonderful to see so many companies kind of waking up and, and, uh, and really taking pretty bold actions. And of course, we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff right now. Fantastic. And, and just so everybody knows, ZodiacMetrics.com is where you can find it. So let, let's start off with a question from me, and then we'll switch back and forth between Samir and I. But, you know, one of the things I want to do is let's get the conversation around Zodiac kind of out of the way, and then after that we can dig into some of your recent ebooks and articles and so on and really start talking shops here. So, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that specialize in, you know, LTV, lifetime value, or even customer lifetime value, however you want to say it. So how does Zodiac Metrics itself differ 
um, from other companies? What really does make them different? Well, there are actually very few companies that truly specialize in customer valuation. There's a bunch who will offer it up uh, as part of a, a broader array of things that they do. Yeah, we do that too. But there's very few companies that say, this is what we do best. This is what we want to focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to be held accountable for the numbers that we come up with. Uh, we want to educate you about how we're coming up with them uh, and, and a wide variety of use cases, specifically or at least largely related to customer valuation. So we're actually carving a whole new space in the, the, the MarTech landscape to say that, again, it's not just this one thing that you do every once in a while, but it should be part of just the day-to-day tactical as well as the long-term uh, strategic activities that, that, are, that many, many companies are working on. So yes. one of the things I want to focus on, and before I get to you, Dan, also is you, you talked about we teach you how we do it. I, I think that's an interesting notion, too, and, and I don't know, Dan, if you want to answer that one, too, but it's the idea that you're saying we want to help you do something better, but we're not just going to do it under our, um, you know, under the table, behind the scenes algorithm. You're never going to know how we did it. We're actually going to teach you how we do the, the methodology. Is that correct? Uh, yes and no. Yes. I mean, for sure, uh, a lot of the kind of the base elements of the, the core model that, that we use, uh, those are all in the published literature. And a lot of the papers, you know, Pete, Pete is the one who wrote the paper. And I think, you know, with that obviously comes, uh, you know, some credibility that, you know, we've put a lot of thought into these models and validating them and making sure that they actually pass the peer review process. Now, mm-hmm. you know, part of this is, you know, if, if this was purely just kind of regurgitating a model that's already kind of in, in the public, um, it wouldn't be quite as appealing. Uh, but we've kind of really tried to take these models to the next level and you know, make sure that you know, we sque- squeeze all, all the signal that's possible out of them uh, so that we get the, the best darn predictions that we can, uh, even you know, with some kind of very interesting edge cases, which we've had the opportunity to, uh, to study now, you know, given that we've now worked with you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of companies. Uh, so, you know, I think as academics, you know, we're always very tempted to you know, say just basically as much as we can. Uh, so we'll definitely be you know, pretty explicit about, you know, the nature of the extensions that we've made in addition to kind of calling attention to the core models. Uh, but yeah, I would say, um, you know, it's kind of drawing that, that fine balance between you know, giving away all of the IP and uh, yeah. You know, just making it clear exactly where where the edge is coming from, so that we're not seen as some you know pure black box. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And, and I was thinking, like, before I get to my actual question, I was just going to ask a teething question to Jeremy's original question, which is uh, a lot of people talk about customer lifetime value. And I think uh, you know, if you go do some research and if you talk to people who have performed customer lifetime value exercise in the organization. For a lot of folks, customer lifetime value means multiple things. Uh, in your view, what do you really think customer lifetime value is? Well, there, it should mean one thing, <laughs> one thing and one thing only, which is the, the projected future value of uh, of a given customer. Uh, now, how you calculate that, there, there could be some discussions about that. So, for instance, do we take into account the referral value that, that will spill over from one customer to others. Uh, so there, there's lots of questions about the inputs and, of course, the math. But uh, I think we should all agree that it is the, the, the net present value of, of all economically valuable activities that we'll get from a given customer. Uh, and the problem is there's such 
lack of clarity about what it means, not to mention how it's calculated, uh, and such a lack of uh, specificity that people don't want to be held accountable for those numbers. Uh, oh, we just did an overall lifetime value across the customers. We're saying <laughs> no. We want a specific dollar and cents number for this customer over here. And you know what? You can hold us accountable for that. Uh, so I think the more we can make it tangible, specific, comparable, accountable, uh, the more that companies will start to give it credibility and to really focus on on an ever broader set of use cases for it. Yeah, I think. So you'd, and, uh, go go for it, Dan. Sorry. I'm saying this kind of goes back to, to Pete's original point for the the first question. You know, comparing us to you know, kind of what's already been out there. There's a lot of people and companies and vendors that pay lip service to customer lifetime value, but there's a big question of whether or not any of those people would actually risk their budget, you know, spending actual money. That's a big one based on those CLV outputs. And I think a lot of times you know, that's where people get a little, a little bit nervous, say, well, <laughs> actually, let, let's do something else, uh, that they don't actually fully trust the outputs that they're coming up with. And I think you well, know, really for the first time what we're trying to do is say, you know, I would be willing to back this up with my own money. And uh, you know, that, wow. that just kind of holds you to a much higher standard. Well, Samir, before we get to your question too, so – I, I know there's a lot of different people out there who have formulas. I mean, you can easily go to Google, type in CLV or LTV formula, and there's going to be at least you know half a dozen formulas out there. Are these other formulas wrong, or they're just giving you partial answers, or partial, or using partial data? At best, they're partial, and in, in some cases, they are quite wrong. I'll just, I'll just very quickly list some of the issues. Number one, whenever you see that CLV formula, it is always always exclusively related to the contractual setting when you know someone is renewing something over time and then eventually leaving whereas most businesses non-contractual you can think about any kind of retailer or pharmaceutical or hotel chain or you know most businesses are non-contractual you'll never see the non-contractual formula out there because it's hard and it has an integral in it Ooh. Um, so that's uh, problem number one and problem number two is it tends to say here is the CLV formula for for either for the average customer, it doesn't capture the heterogeneity across them. And it turns out, while this sounds like kind of a picky, picky horrible uh, technical point, it really, really, really matters. And that if you do the CLV calculation for an average customer versus a heterogeneous mix, you will always, 100% of the time, understate the value of that mix of customers. So it's kind of ironic that in doing it, let's say, wrong or partially, uh, marketers are understating the value of the customers when you think if they're going to have a bias, it would, they'd want to go the other way. And what some people will say is, well, you know, we're going to get it directionally correct. And they feel like the differences can't be that large, can they? And uh, it's very, very meaningful, the difference between the value that we calculate and oftentimes the value that you'll get from a standard formula, that it can be off by a factor of, of three or more. You know, so it's not like... Uh, you're picking up the 80-20 and uh, you know, just kind of going for the, the final scraps by incorporating heterogeneity. Now, this is like going from a, a value of, of 10 to a value of 30. Uh, and that, it just makes a world of difference. I mean, you can imagine stock price being $10 to $30, which is it, you know? Yeah. It's, a, it's a very large range. Exactly. Great. Uh, so let's switch gears here to talk about uh, one of the things that I'm really, really closely attached to, the CRM. Uh, so, Peter, in your book, Customer Centricity, you discuss the role of CRM uh, and how it's applicable for customer centricity. 
Can you share some of the insights on why CRM has become something else than its core value proposition? Sure. It's a really important point because everything I'm about to say about CRM, take out those three letters and shove in the words big data instead and the same thing will hold. So, you know, CRM was, was all the rage in the uh, the early and mid-1990s that we're going to have the 360-degree view of the customer and, and, and all this and that. But if you ask anyone who was involved with the CRM implementation at that time or for the 10, 15 years afterwards, they will only use words like disaster, frustration, waste of time, money. Uh, just uh, It was just a terrible, terrible thing because companies were kind of getting the cart before the horse. They were building these elaborate systems because they could, but they didn't really have a good sense of what they would do with it. They didn't know what kind of decisions they would drive. They didn't know how they would prioritize those decisions, and uh, and and they basically gave up. They said, okay, well, this CRM thing, that's done. What's the next flavor of the month? Big data. Uh, so I, th- I think CRM is really, really, really important, but you have to know what you want to do with it. Uh, and unfortunately, the best... Uh, things to do with CRM uh, com- comes back to this idea of customer centricity, which runs against the grain of traditional product-centric approaches. You don't really want to use CRM just to sell more product. You want to use CRM to to build better relationships with your better customers. And that's most companies just don't know how to handle that. They 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 don't think about doing it, and they wouldn't know how to even if they were incented to. So so that kind of teeds into my uh, kind of uh, the next follow-up question is how can the organizations take control back of the CRM and use it for customer centricity? So one of the things that we've done, and this is where uh, where the work with Dan has been uh, so successful, is to try to uh, uh, find ways to avoid going right into the teeth of the CRM storm. Can we find other folks in the organization who stand to gain from this understanding of customer-level data uh, and, and will therefore give it kind of a blessing and credibility and will kind of give us a fresh, clean slate that we can start again. So we've been spending a lot of our time thinking about ways to take all that, that those, these granular customer insights and win over the CFO. Uh, so, and so this idea of customer-based corporate valuation, if we can get the CFO on board, then it's going to be real easy to get the CMO and the CTO and, and all the other folks to, to, let's not even call it CRM, but just to embrace uh, the, the rich customer-level data and the differences across customers for tactical and strategic purposes, basically to, to finally fulfill the promise uh, that we were starting to think about uh, 25 years ago, but we just weren't in the right position to do so. Yeah, that's uh, fantastic. So let's let, let's also jump to uh, something else. So I, I found on the the knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu, so on, um, there's a great article. Uh, it, it was a podcast that both of you guys are on. It's Why Customer Retention Lies at the Heart of Corporate Valuation, something that came out just a few weeks ago. Um, so you, you guys really talk about – these uh, meal delivery services or furniture retails like Blue Apron, HelloFresh, Wayfair, and Overstock. And you talk about, you know, using your new methodology uh, to really understand that value, you know, valuing and valuing subscription-based and non-subscription-based businesses. Could you tell us a little bit about this, this, um, this finding that you guys found? Why don't you go for it, Dad? 
Yeah, so the kind of the, the overall idea of customer-based corporate valuation is to take public companies like the ones that you're uh, mentioning, uh, whether it's Wayfair, Overstock.com, e- e-commerce retailers in general, or subscription businesses like uh, like the meal kit companies, but also maybe even pay TV, uh, uh, satellite, radio, or, or anything like that. So take companies like that and say, you know, how can we come up with more accurate estimates of how much these firms are worth? And uh, you know what's interesting is if you speak with a professor of finance, they'd say, you know, valuation, very important, but pretty much we've checked the box. <laughs> there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation since the 1970s. But what's interesting is if you go to the back of that textbook and just look in the subject index for the word customer, the word customer literally doesn't even show up. And hmm. uh, you know, we think that's really striking, and it's quite an opportunity that essentially there's a lot of companies that in their public filings will disclose customer data, whether it's the number of customers that are acquired during the period, the number of orders that those customers placed, et cetera, et cetera. Let's take data like that and use it to make more accurate estimates of what future revenues are going to be and to come full circle to the title of the podcast, be able to infer things like you know, what is retention and, and how, how does it differ across companies within a category? Is this company's retention good or not? and uh, be able to compare the amount that's being spent to acquire customers to that stream of, of future profits at the individual customer level to say, you know, is this company actually turning a profit on, on every customer that they acquire? So I think you know, those are kind of the actionable back-end insights, and it all kind of gets rolled up into this you know, estimate of the overall valuation of the firm, which itself, given the fact that it's coming from a more accurate uh, estimate of future sales, should be more accurate as well. So uh, it's definitely turned a lot of heads and you know, definitely happy to, to talk about how that also dovetails into customer centricity. No, I, I'd love to. And I was going to even uh, note that it, it seems like you've gotten some good press and bad press about it. But, you know, there's in, in this world, when you're bringing up something as, as important as valuation during a publicly traded company, you know, bad press may not always be a bad thing for you guys. It, it really puts you in a spotlight of saying, I think you need to start listening to Pete and Dan, I, I think they, they've got something here. And I, I would believe more of these companies out there are going to start contacting you guys. Yeah, and they have been. It's, and it's been interesting because a lot of them, I, I'm, I might be overstating, oversimplifying their, their reactions. There's a lot of them saying, these are really cool methods. You know, we, 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 can't, we can't argue with what Pete and Dan did. It's just that we think that the company is just worth much more than that for reasons that are outside of their models. And okay, that's fine. Let them drink their quote unquote the finance guy, right? right. <laughs> it's it's so funny that it happens. But but the fact that they explicitly or implicitly endorse the methods, and even will get some of their smart people, these analysts who never in a million years would want to work on a marketing problem, to be looking at these predictive models for valuation purposes. That's a big victory right there. Uh, if, if we can just get people to try this stuff out, to understand the methods, the implications uh, for valuation and otherwise, uh, then whether pe- people buy into the bottom line conclusions or not, it, it, it's not as important to me. That makes sense. Let, let me jump into another one and then I'll pass it back over to Samir. So um, in this article and in a few different other places, you guys talk about you know, finding that balance between acquisition and retention by looking at the data, you know, below the surface data. And to me, coming from my world, I don't come from as much of an analytics world as as you guys. But for me, I see marketing as this fine balance between art and science, right? And, and from a lot of things that you're doing, I see a lot of science. I see a lot of data. How does you know? How do you work with marketing companies or even marketers 
out there who are really into the tactical um, day to day and really f- trying to figure out what is the art of what they do and what's, you know, what is the right formula to be able to go and, and be successful? You know, how, how do you really manage art and science together? So I am not an expert on the kind of creative parts of marketing. I think I could speak for Dan and saying that as well. But, but uh, there's a lot of marketers who, who say, well, I'm doing the creative stuff. I can't be held accountable for it. You just don't understand. You just can't measure. <laughs> yeah. And we don't buy that. Uh, so whether it's coming up with some kind of customer experience campaign or some kinds of surprise and delight initiative or, or, or even just a mundane, you know, buy two, get one free promotion. Mm-hmm. Instead of looking at these things purely from did we sell more stuff during the campaign, let's look at it from the lens of, of customer valuation. What's the value of the customers who participated in it and how much more valuable are they after the campaign than they were before? So I'm going I'm not going to judge how creative that ad is, but I'm going to judge how much lasting value it creates through the way it, it, it transforms or reshapes the customer base. Uh, and I think that's a, a very reasonable standard to have. And maybe we can get into it later on. It's fascinating to talk about how companies have now kind of turned it around and said, can we uh, find uh, who are the customers who are becoming more valuable and feature them and feature their kinds of activities in our next round of ads? So a lot of companies are starting to wake up and letting these CLVs drive their creative decisions as well. Yeah, I agree. And, and before I pass it over to Samir, you know, I've done a lot of public speaking before. And one of the things that I always talk about, I usually use this slide of, you know, it's a left brain, right brain slide with the two Einsteins. And I don't know if you've seen that picture before, but I talk about this idea that you got to be able to use your left brain and your right brain. You got to be able to, it's not just about KPIs and data, but it's also about customer experience. So it's being able to mix the two. And I think when marketers are able to find that, that synergy between, you know, you know, the, the art and the science of marketing, that's where they're going to be successful. And I think a lot of that stems from what you're talking about. What is the long lasting value of that customer? So great yeah, stuff, guys. Yeah. The two other thoughts that I had. One is, you don't have to take our word for it. I think if you want to kind of get buy-in from the CFO and potentially then get more marketing budget, you know, for 2019, um, you know, they're going to be talk. the CFO is going to be talking dollars and cents. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think it doesn't diminish in any way the importance of the creative aspects of, of the work that they might do. But uh, I think it could be very helpful to then translate that or bring it up to to a higher level, you know, things like customer acquisition costs and customer retention, translate their activities into what effect they're going to have on those higher level metrics that the CFO will appreciate to be able to justify the budget that perhaps they, they really should deserve. So, I agree. Um, I agree. yes, yeah, kind of mutual respect, but you know, there is a communication process and ultimately it is the CFO and the CEO who control the purse. Spring, first yeah, it's fantastic. I was actually going to say, Pete and Dan, why don't you come and give this uh, information in my organization? <laughs> We're kind of in the same boat trying to figure <laughs> out like between the the creative and non-creative side of thing. But I'm totally analytical and kind of very similar to you guys. Like I like to put dollars and cents to everything that we do, but most organizations don't think that way. Um, so cool. Uh, so actually, uh, continuing on the topic of uh, sort of lifetime value, I read the ebook, uh, Simplifying Data-Driven Marketing, that our listeners can download from your website, zodiacmetrics.com. 
Now, in your ebook, you mention organizations measure customer lifetime value solely based on historical purchase data. Uh, so, can you provide insights on why it's not the best way to measure CLV and what should be done for, like, what's a better method? So, let's clarify. So, uh, we agree that you have to use the historical data in order to, to get the CLVs, but too many companies are looking purely at the historical profitability and saying that is the CLV. <laughs> that if you made three purchases with me last year, then, then that's what you will do next year. Uh, and, and life isn't that simple. So what we try to do is rely less on the data itself and try to tell the story of kind of the true underlying behavior and behavioral propensities that are driving the data. In other words, we want to capture the data generating process instead of just mucking around with the data itself. So, so let's try to sort out uh, people's propensity to buy, uh, how often they're likely to buy, regardless of, of what they actually did last year, but then also enrich it, saying that, that life isn't just a steady state uh, setting, and so you're going to have uh, customers dropping out over time. There might be other kinds of dynamics happening within customer. You're going to have new cohorts of customers who might be more or less valuable than batch of customers that we acquired uh, last year at this time. So let's get past just, just mucking around in data and tell the stories. And once we have a sense about these, these underlying parameters, uh, that will not only let us make better forecasts, but also better diagnostics, a better sense of how we should uh, allocate that, that marginal dollar. So and it turns out that the math to translate from historical data into forward-looking CLVs, it's not that bad. You can do a lot of it in Excel or, or even very simple R code, a lot of which that we actually, uh, for the, very, the real simple models that we have made available. Uh, so that there's really no excuse not to have your eyes on the future and, and, and be uh, firmly rooted past. Maybe one other small point on that. Even holding aside the model, uh, because CLV is ultimately a prediction or a large component of, the, of, of, of a customer's CLV will come from the predicted future value for that customer. Ultimately, you know, holding the model aside, we can predict, we can see how well our predictions validate. And so I think, sure, you know, someone can use a model that's very simplistic, but ultimately let's put that model to the test and see how well it predicts, you know, the next year's worth of data. And that's one of the things that we'll always do uh, with any model that that we've proposed, uh, you know, say for, for a new company that we're onboarding, so uh, you know, ultimately, proof's in the pudding, and uh, I'd say that's a big reason why, you know, we we really feel quite good about our predictions is because when we, you know, essentially stress test it uh, along a, a variety of different dimensions all at the same time, uh, you know, the model will hold up in in that holdout setting. That's fantastic. Thank you. Cool. So, uh, Samir, do you got one more? Yeah, or do you go, for to go for uh, it. Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, so um, I'm sure Pete and Dan, you've seen, and if you've been to any of these conferences, everybody's talking about predictive analytics. Everybody's talking about AI. Um, they, everybody's talking about, you know, this kind of whole 360 view personalization. These are all the trendy words. I mean, I, I've been to Martech for the past few years. I've spoken the past two years. Samir is actually speaking this year, and this is all that we talk about, or all that we see people talk about, and all that the questions that we get back is, you know, how are you integrating predictive analytics, or how are you predicting AI into what you do, and so on. What is your, what is y'all's take? How, how do you see kind of your work either integrating or complementing, um, you know, this whole AI trend? 
Well, we're doing predictive analytics. There's no question about it. We're right there saying, let's make our decisions based on what's likely to happen and our uncertainty around it, as Dan said. Uh, uh, so it's just a question, though, of, of how we approach it. And the problem is, for most people, only know one way, one broad set of uh, suite of approaches, uh, which would be of kind of machine learning or or for, you know, old school people, basically regression models where we have a bunch of X's and let's predict the Y and then let's use that. Once we have the quote unquote model, then let's use that to, to forecast and make decisions. The models that we're coming up with are actually quite different. They're, they come from a completely different direction than that usual regression based approach. Uh, and let me just try to give contrast real quickly. And then, of course, we can elaborate on it further. Uh, so your your basic machine learning approaches are really, really good when you want to make classification decisions. So will this person be a credit risk or not? Um, will this person likely churn in the next year or not? Will this person buy our product at all next year or not? When you're trying to make classification decisions and you want to have an explanation of what makes the people in this bucket different than the people in that bucket, you can't beat that approach. You can't beat machine learning, whatever specific uh, methodology you, you, you might be interested in. Uh, that's great. And those are some really interesting and important problems. But if you want to start reframing those questions from just pure short-term classification to longer term and more granular, so not will this customer churn next year or not, but how long will this customer last with me? How many uh -huh. purchases will they make? How much will they spend over that horizon? So when you're starting to make more longitudinal statements with this kind of how long, how many, how much, as opposed to will they or won't they, a lot of the machine learning approaches actually break down. They, they don't fare nearly as well. They're just not well suited for, for those kinds of issues. So the models that we work on are, are more about making these, these longer run, more granular predictions, which are pretty important in a lot of different predictive analytic settings. Now, there's a wonderful interplay, a wonderful complementarity between uh, our probabilistic models, similar to what, say, an actuary would use, and traditional machine learning approaches. And again, we can pursue that. But the, the, the point is that predictive analytics doesn't necessarily mean machine learning uh, and mm -hmm. vice versa. No, yeah. that's interesting because th there's been a lot of situations to where, and Samir and I have been in these situations where the companies we've worked for have talked about our churn rates and they're scared that companies will churn and so on and they they pull out a lot of uh, predictive analytics to identify how many companies will churn and then what we do as marketers is we build out a series of tactics to try to save everybody and their only goal is a one-sided goal which is don't let them churn but if if our data is going to show that they're going to churn, being able to go granular, as you're saying, and, and focusing on, well, they're going to churn no matter what. You do the best you can, but here's how many turns we can get out of them. Here's how much spend we can get out of them before they do churn. That is even more powerful, I believe. Yes, indeed. Yep, getting more granular, uh, making more statements about you know, the, 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 the how much and so on, uh, I think has massive implications, not only from a statistical standpoint, but from the way that we look at our customers and, and choose to uh, prioritize all the, the triage uh, activities that we may or may not do uh, with churn in mind. Yeah, not all churners are created equal. You know, if, if one customer you have, you've estimated to have a predictive value of, of say, $2,000, assuming they don't churn, and another one has a predicted value of only $100, then 
you're going to treat those two customers differently, as you probably should. So I say you know, the other point is you know, we certainly don't have anything at all against machine learning. And in fact, there are machine learning components to uh, the product that we've built. So you know, imagine that you've kind of scored all of your customers with our CLV model. You know, we feel very good about those estimates. We can kind of go back and say, all right, let's take all those CRM attributes that you have about all your customers, that those thousand fields, and uh, just find what are the fields that are most associated with the high-value customers versus the low-value ones. So for that particular task, again, that kind of moves right back into the sweet spot of machine learning, and so we'll, we'll use it there. But uh, I think the point is, you know, we really want to, to think carefully about, you know, what tool is right for what job, and machine learning won't be right for every single job. That makes sense. And, and one thing before I pass it over to Samir, too, is, you know, and, and Pete, you and Dan and I uh, spoke in our pre-call about the my concept of the third, uh, the 60-20-10, right? 60% of customers, 20%, and then 10%. Mm-hmm. Right. Actually, no, uh, it was, yeah, no, sorry, 60, 60, 30, 10. My math is wrong. It's a Mondays about that. (laughs) So the 60, 30, 10. And, you know, we talked about this idea that, you know, and, and our listeners have heard this over dozens of podcasts. You know, let's talk about what can people do because a lot of times, it's really scary. You know, if you're the 60% of marketers out there and you don't really understand what artificial intelligence is or predictive analytics or even what a customer lifetime value is and you you want to get started, you want to move into the 30% of marketers who are testing these things out, it just seems really scary to, to connect with you guys and, and to get started. How, how have you simplified the process? How, how, how can the average marketer out there you know, take what you guys are doing and implement that into their daily activities. So, so we'll tell, tell you uh, three different ways to do it. That's a real important. Uh, in fact, it's been a big point of frustration because we have these awesome methods and people just aren't um, embracing them. So, uh, so three things. So, so number one, that's where the book on customer centricity comes in, where we kind of play down the models, no Greek letters or anything like that. Let's take it from a, a strategic uh, perspective. Let, let's let's uh, recognize the pain point with being very product centric that you're subject to commoditization and smart customers and just all the the pressures that that are that are occurring on companies today. So you just need a fundamentally different strategy, one that oh by the way requires all those methods. Uh, so so the the overall strategy of customer centricity has been uh, I think a lot of companies have been. Uh, uh, kind of um, um, moving towards it on their own. So just to bring clarity to it so they know what they're moving towards, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of back to our CRM discussion. That's been really, really, really helpful. Uh, number two, there there is Zodiac itself. And maybe uh, we'll let Dan talk about uh, how that uh, uh, brings a lot of simplification and clarification. And the third thing that's is very recent, but boy, has it been great. Uh, along the lines of customer centricity, I have a brand new uh, simulation. So many of your listeners have probably done some kind of marketing simulation game where, hey, let's go out there and sell as much product as we can. Well, we have a customer centricity simulation where, hey, let's grow as profitable a customer base as we can. So which kinds of customers do we want to acquire? What are we going to uh, spend to get them? How much are we going to spend on acquisition versus retention and development? Do we bring in the loyalty program, strategic account management, the premium service, the CRM system? So to try to take a lot of the issues that people are just starting to talk about today and make it kind of fun and experiential and competitive and just to kind of get behind the wheel and try operating in this emerging new world, 
uh, it's been great fun to see people just kind of just try it out. Uh, and of course, again, as part of that, you got to look at all the granular data and make these decisions of who the best customers are, which means CLV. Uh, but maybe, Dan, you could talk a little bit about how uh, Zodiac has, has brought some clarification and, and, and that, that wake-up call that I keep referring to. Yeah. In terms of Zodiac, it kind of fits, for me, into this framework. When you hold aside the models, there's money and velocity. <laughs> and uh, I think Zodiac, the selling point oftentimes is on on the money, that essentially, you know, if I'm a marketer, I'm sure you're doing all sorts of cool, crazy stuff, but show me how I can make money with this, and I almost don't even care about the model. You know, I'll uh, I'll go with you guys. So hopefully, you know, we've done a pretty good job of convincing people that we do, you know, we are making the right predictions and you can trust trust our results. Uh, but oftentimes we'll then kind of jump immediately into you know, some sort of pilot where uh, companies can very quickly and easily see you know, how we can kind of just make them more money than they had been making before. So, you know, one of the first use cases that we'll oftentimes talk about are Facebook lookalike campaigns or something where you know, essentially they had been making their customer acquisition decisions previously on the basis of things like personas or you know other demographic uh, you know uh, groups that the CEO said you know we should target the millennials and instead of uh, targeting customers on or prospects on the basis of that let's target them on the basis of the CLV of existing customers so find me more people who are like my current high lifetime value customers, feed that email list into the Facebook lookalike campaign and just compare the results. And uh, ultimately, I mean, time and again, we've seen um, essentially we'll make more return and uh, the cost per acquisition will actually be lower than uh, than had been uh, previously obtained because we're not targeting purely on the basis of these very crowded categories that a lot more people are also targeting on the basis of. So, yeah, that, that's kind of the, the money category. Uh, in terms of philosophy, you know, Pete had uh, talked about customer centricity, and I think you know, the other one that kind of fits into that a little bit is uh, the customer-based corporate valuation work. You know, that essentially, mm-hmm. it goes back to that same point that you know, I may not know all the math, Math, but I can intuitively appreciate that the customer is really, really important to the value of the firm. And so I think that can kick off a discussion. Oftentimes, you know, maybe it's initiated by the CEO or the CFO or maybe the shareholders <laughs> uh, and uh, just get everyone saying, you know, we know we need to do something about this. Let's find a way to do it. And that kind of pushes them into into the models because there's really no other way uh, to act on it thoughtfully yeah I really like uh, yeah I really like the idea of uh, taking it all the way to what really matters for those organizations you know it's one thing you know, selling uh, a model or a service versus the other thing is actually solving their problem and generating more revenue so speaking of that let's take it all the way to where well, the rubber hits the road can you guys share examples of companies that are using customer centricity and how are they doing it yeah, you know, it's uh, when I wrote the book, a lot of it was based on the, the patterns that I had seen across companies, but it, but it was a, a it was more kind of anecdotal. Uh, but since then, I've had the opportunity to see a lot of companies just kind of doing this in a big bold way, and just real happy to talk about some of those examples. So, uh, top of my list uh, for a long time, and is not changing anytime soon, would be the gaming company Electronic Arts. Uh, you know, people know them for. FIFA World Cup soccer and for Sim City and for Madden football, but what's going on behind the, uh, the the scenes there is is incredible. Every single day, 
they're looking at what game playing for how long you're making micropayments or not and they're saying how much more valuable how much more future lifetime value do you have in you today than we thought you had yesterday for a billion customers around the world they're doing day by day CLE updates so that by itself is impressive just to have the technical capability but it's what they're doing with it to really facilitate customer centricity and and to give you one example I alluded to this earlier uh, they don't have have an ad agency. They 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 uh, figure out all the ads themselves instead of just going to the creative people and say, "Hey, just come up with something compelling." What they do is they look around and say, "Which kinds of customers have shown the greatest sustained increase in COV over the last, say, six months?" And what is it that they have in common with each other? What games do they play? What scenes do they like? What weapons do they use? So when it's time for us to shoot our next set of ads, let's feature that kind of content. Because that's going to be most appealing to our most valuable customers and help us acquire more like them. And I can go on and on and on with other examples of what they're doing. But they're, they're getting those CLVs and using them to drive pretty much every tactical and strategic decision that they're making. That's fantastic. Great example. I'll just throw one other at you. Uh, another company with great admiration for. Another company that's known more for just its big brand rather than you know its use of data but they're kind of waking up and moving in this direction. And so I, I love the things that's going on with, with Nike, for instance. So uh, as you may know, they're opening up a new flagship store in New York. They're going to have a f- whole floor of that store that's members only. Now, usually if you're in the business of selling stuff, you want to make, you want everyone to go to every floor and see as much merchandise as possible. But but Nike's starting to realize that not all customers are created equal, and you know what? We got to do some special things for those who have who who seem to suggest that they are or will be worth it. So they're really starting to figure out not only the idea of doing something like that, but then using something like CLV to to actually determine which customers should be allowed to go on that members-only floor or not. So we're seeing kind of big brands move in this direction, as well as some of the kind of e-commerce, digitally native companies that are just like born into the data analytics right from the get-go. Yeah, I really yeah, like the Nike though, part. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, for one, on the Nike front, even the fact that they have the store in the first place is a big big difference from how things used to be. You know, so they're kind of in the middle of this reinvention of themselves. And of, you know, that's really a lot more selling direct, selling through their website, getting to know the customer, uh, yeah, it's, it's moving it, it's moving the whole company in a much more customer centric direction. But even the companies like, uh, you know, that are, are digitally native, uh, companies like Adobe that have, you know, do most of their sales, um, you know, digitally, even they're moving a lot more in the customer centric direction. You know, so they've just kind of finished making this big, uh, transformation themselves to being more of a subscription type of a firm. And while a lot of people will focus on, you know, how willingness to pay might be different for subscription services versus non-subscription services. Uh, the other thing that they kind of get for free is they get to know a lot more about who the customer is. And so they can think in a much more, you know, acquisition, retention, development sort of a framework. Yeah, I really like the Nike example because it not only gives people an opportunity, well, not only gives them the opportunity to sell more to the customers who are ready to buy more, but it also create a secret sort of marketing strategy for exclusivity, right? You know, once you're only allowing a certain group of your customer to go to a floor that automatically sends a message to others who would want to be that customer, like, hey, I should probably look into that direction as well. So that's pretty powerful. 
It's a really important point. There's a lot of companies out there that hesitate to do that kind of thing. They don't want anyone to feel left out. They don't want any, you know, when you have this kind of one size fits all mentality, you worry about differences, perceived differences across customers. But when you take the customer centric mentality, you're not only willing to kind of boldly take that on, but you want to even highlight it to say, you know what? Here's why they've earned it and you haven't yet. And here's what you need to do in order to get there, to make it aspirational, but at the same time to make it specific uh, and uh, and to get to the point where, I mean, look, you know it's true on an airline that you pay a different price than the person next to you. So why doesn't why isn't that more pervasive when it comes to overall customer experiences? Yeah, I love it. Great, great point. This has been great, guys. So, um, I, I think, I think we've probably come to the end of the podcast. Uh, this has been absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's an opportunity to where if you guys want, we can always have a part two and, and dig deep, uh, dig deeper into some of your, uh, use cases and go uh, deeper into the ebooks and so on. But it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on our podcast today. Well, you guys ask great questions, and uh, and I think you you you're kind of in the minds of of, uh, of companies and and people who are just starting to to wake up to the data, the analytics, and technology. So we really do have uh, 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 just a lot of appreciation for for being able to share some of these ideas with you and your listeners. Fantastic, so P Dan, absolutely fantastic. Remember, you guys can, they're all over um, LinkedIn, Twitter, they're all over the net. Just go ahead and Google them. You can easily find them at zodiacmetrics.com. And Samir and I just want to thank everybody for um, their uh, kind reviews and their great words to us. Feel free to keep emailing us and asking us questions, um, emailing us and asking us um, if we can go ahead and interview certain people and any topics you want us to, to discuss and so on. Loving it. This thing's really um, been great this year so far. 2018 has been fantastic. So we just want to thank you. Cool. Analysticsaypodcast.com. We are good to go. So thank you guys, and uh, we'll see you on the air. Thank you very much for having us. Mm-hmm.